So as, as you might have heard, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent kicks off the entire cycle of the liturgical year. A cycle described by Anglican priest Tish Harrison Warren as a slow unfurling of the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit. It's our New Year's Day. It's our New Year's Day. To explain a little bit more, the word Advent is from the Latin word Adventus, and it simply means coming. And so Advent is a season centered around the coming of God. Traditionally, the church has celebrated three Advents during this season. The coming of Christ in the Incarnation, when Jesus took on human flesh and died for our sins. The coming of Christ through the work of the Spirit in the preached word, prayer, and participation in the sacraments. And third, the second coming of Christ when he will return to judge the living and the dead. That's what Advent is. It's a time for us to take a step back, to reflect, to consider our faith. Like I said before, it's also a time of mourning because there is so much evil in the world and we all are crying out, how long, O Lord? Now, if you're interested in learning more about Advent, there's two books I would recommend. There's this small book by Tish Harrison Warren called Advent, The Season of Hope, Fullness of Time series. It's great. It just takes you through the traditions of Advent, explains a little bit about what it is. And then there's a longer book that's really beautiful and wonderful um, by an Anglican priest whose name is Fleming Rutledge. And this is about 400 pages. It's lengthy, but it's also really good and just beautiful. There's sermons on different texts that, uh, that have to do with Advent. So I would encourage you, if you're a reader, pick this up, give it a shot. Um, I don't get any royalties from that. I've just found those books to be really helpful. Um, so anyway, moving on. As I've said before, Advent is the beginning of the church year. And to quote Warren again, and, and I have a slide for this, we begin our Christian year in waiting. We do not begin with our own frantic effort or energy. We do not begin with the merriment of Christmas or the triumph of Easter. We do not begin with the work of the church or the mandate of the Great Commission. Instead, we begin in a place of yearning. We wait for our king to come. This year, we'll be looking to the prophet Isaiah to walk us through this season of waiting and longing. The reality of this time of year is that while many are filled with joy and anticipation, there are also a number of us who walk through the next four weeks in pain. Pain because of the loss of a loved one, pain because maybe you're estranged from your family, or pain because you're simply alone. For some, this time of year just brings chaos and anxiety. My hope for us as a church is that we would use this time of year to cultivate more deeply that life with God we've been talking about. So that in the midst of the joy, the anticipation, the pain, the chaos, and the anxiety, we might find Christ. That's our hope. That's our hope, that we might experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. Advent is a season of longing and waiting for the arrival of the King. And so this morning... Let's gaze upon and behold the king who brought Isaiah to his knees with his glory and splendor, but who also demonstrated compassion and grace toward a sinner left undone. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump into our text this morning. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this time that we can step back, that we can reflect, that we can wait, Lord, that we can wait together as a family of God for the coming of our King, your Son, Jesus, Father. Lord, how long will we have to endure the pain, the suffering of this world, Lord God? How long until you come and set things right, Lord God, and usher in new creation, Father? In the meantime, Father, we thank you that you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Be with us now as we walk through this passage, Lord God. Encourage us, challenge us, draw us near to you, convict us of sin where necessary, and make us more and more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 6. We'll also have the passage on the screen behind me. Before we look at our text, as always, I want to quickly provide some broad context to help us gain a little bit of footing. So first, the prophet Isaiah, who is he? Well, he's a man who was working in the southern kingdom of Judah in around the 740s to 7 or 680s BC. And he was prophesying before the Babylonian exile. His prophecies, however, stretch into the time of the Babylonian exile and also into the future. So, so the book of Isaiah is a deeply eschatological book. That means it deals with the things to come. Now, there are scholars who believe that more than one author is responsible for the book due to the historical breadth the text covers. Whatever the case, if that is true, it doesn't change the integrity of the book as both the inspired and authoritative word of God. His ministry was one of warning that if Judah continued in their idolatry and their oppression of the poor, they would be judged by God. And that judgment would come through the hands of these foreign kings, Assyria and Babylon. But along with that warning, Isaiah was also putting forth a message of hope. To quote the Bible Project, and I have a slide for this. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all his covenant promises. He trusted that God would send a king from David's line to establish his kingdom on earth and lead Israel into obedience, allowing God's blessing and salvation to flow outward to all the nations. Our text this morning, it sits at the center of the first section of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 12, a section that's littered with these accusations against the people of God for their idolatry, their rebellion, and their injustice. He promises a judgment that will not only remove the rebellion, but also purify the faithful. It'll remove the rebellion, but it will purify the faithful. And it's at this central point in chapter 6 where Isaiah, in the temple, is confronted with this vision of the glory and splendor of God, surrounded by heavenly beings, worshiping and crying out, holy, holy, holy. The text says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So Isaiah finds himself in either the temple or caught up in a vision of the temple at a point in Judah's history when a good king, one who did what was right in the sight of the Lord for a time, until pride got the better of him, he was dying. King Uzziah is on his deathbed. And it's at this moment that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
In the words of one commentator, it was during the unstable time following the death of Uzziah who reigned over Judah for such a long time with his son Jotham that Isaiah was confronted with the real king. Right? There's a word in there for us, right? In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the uncertainty, wondering who in the world is going to take us forward, who in the world is going to lead us as a people, Isaiah is confronted with the true king seated high and lifted up. I mean, I can't help but be reminded that we're entering into an election season where we're wondering who in the world is going to lead our country. And I can't stress enough that regardless who is sitting in the Oval Office, Jesus is seated on the throne. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that and entrust ourselves to that reality. Because it's so easy, right, for us to trust these other rulers and leaders. And so God meets Isaiah in the midst of this chaos. There's uncertainty in Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel is on the brink of collapse. And now Uzziah, struck with leprosy for his unfaithfulness, his pride, he's dying. If you go back and read chapter 1 of Isaiah, the people are living in rebellion. And so for a guy like Isaiah, who understood the promises and the covenants of God, he's looking around and probably wondering, what in the world is going on? I think a lot of us experience that same sort of confusion. And I also think that for some of us, especially during the holidays, when we're expected to feel a certain way, that confusion is heightened, right? Because God's made some promises to us too. Train up a child in the way he should go. God works all things out for those who love him. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Some of our kids are far from God. We have stacks upon stacks of things that have not been worked out for good, and many of us are overburdened and exhausted, still walking in weariness and heavy ladenness. First, I think more often than not, we simply misinterpret and misunderstand some of these promises. But more important than that, and this is where the experiences of Isaiah start to intersect with the life with God we are seeking to cultivate here in 2023. And it begs the question, to whom or what are we looking to satisfy us? To whom or what are we looking to satisfy us? Psalm chapter 90 verse 10 tells us that we'll live for about 70 to 80 years and that those years will be marked by toil and trouble. Right? That's what it says. I, don't, I mean, that's what it says. I don't say that to depress us, but rather to paint a realistic picture of what life under the sun is. And it's in that moment of realization, in the year the King Uzziah died, that Isaiah finds himself being upended by God, confronted with the beautiful and terrifying reality of who he is, and what does he see? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne. In other words, 
He sees the Lord in a position of authority. But it's also the place from where a king executes his judgment, which is exactly what Yahweh is about to do to the people of Judah and also to Isaiah, but we'll get there in a few minutes. The text says that the Lord is high and lifted up and that the train or the hem of his robe is filling the temple. See, what the text is trying to communicate to us is the sheer enormity of what Isaiah is beholding. One commentator argues that Yahweh's throne is towering above the temple itself with just the tip of his robe filling the entire temple. We're then introduced to these strange creatures, these seraphim with their six wings, two covering their face, two over their feet, and two used to fly. Commentator Alec Matir says that in covering their feet, they disavowed any intention to choose their own path. Their intent was only to go as the Lord commanded. And then Isaiah hears the seraphim calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The language suggests that this calling to one another, this, this back and forth is continuous that it's happening over and over and over again. This, this worship of the king, he's holy, he's holy, he's holy. And the fact that it's announced three times, it indicates the totality of this description. But what does it actually mean to be holy? What is being communicated? What is Isaiah beholding? Well, the word is used throughout the Old Testament. It describes God's unique nature, a nature that is entirely other and altogether pure. It's also a word that's associated with brightness, a brightness that is unapproachable. Think the sun, right? You cannot get close to the sun and live. You can't even stare at it for too long and be okay. But yet the sun is this incredible source of life. Think Moses and the burning bush. To quote Matir again, the holiness of God refers to his total and unique moral majesty. The text then says that the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. All of this language, this shaking, the smoke, we've seen it before. Think the, the mountain of God in, in the Exodus story that there's smoke just surrounding it, there's peals of thunder, there's this just incredible, miraculous event happening before the people of Israel. And what this is, is, is what theologians call a theophany. When the realm of God intersects with our realm, God makes it known, it seems. Now, in case we forgot, Isaiah's there. He's watching all this. And what he's experiencing, what he's beholding, where he is, remember, he's in the temple. And it looks like he's in the part of the temple where people really aren't supposed to be, except one guy once a year, the most holy place. It's where the presence and glory of God resides. And he immediately realizes that he's in trouble. Why? Because Isaiah knows the calling placed upon the people of God, placed upon him. You shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And it's in that moment that Isaiah is cut to the heart. Look what it says in verse 5. 
And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am lost. A better translation could be, I am destroyed, or I am silenced. The sort of silence following disaster or death. That's what Isaiah is experiencing right now because he knows that who he is plus what he's looking at equals a terrible scenario for him. Right? Like this is basic math here. He fully recognizes who he is and he is beholding who God is and he understands that the only logical conclusion to that is his destruction. That's what's happening in this scene right now. And I think sometimes we miss that piece because we're so overwhelmed by this majestic, beautiful glory of God that we don't know what's going through the mind of Isaiah right now. He is utterly undone. He's just waiting for that equal sign to come to fruition here. He acknowledges that not only is he a man of unclean lips, but he's lived silently and complicitly among a people of unclean lips. Right? He hasn't, he hasn't really engaged it the way he knows he probably should have. And so what does that actually mean? Well, remember what Judah is guilty of. Rebellion, idolatry, and injustice carried out against the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Look at chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. Gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Upon being confronted with what true holiness looks like, Isaiah sees that he's a part of the problem. He sees that he's a part of the problem. Just a few chapters ago, he's proclaiming this stuff. And now he's face to face. He's like, oh, oh, I'm right there with them. I'm also a man of unclean lips. I've also played a role in this terrible injustice that has been carried out among the least of these in Judah. See, the Advent season, it's a season of almsgiving. A time when we're reminded to look to those whom society has cast off to the side and to care for them. Just as Judah and Isaiah during the reign of Uzziah, the church has also been complicit in wrongdoing perpetrated against poor, marginalized, and oppressed people. We just have. Our history is not that great. It's tough to look at, but it's real. Holiness, then, according to Scripture, it's far bigger than just personal piety, personal holiness, right? Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's at least that, not the, not the stuff I just said, but it's at least personal piety, 
But if it does not also include moving toward the broken, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, then we simply become clanging gongs. Right? This is what Isaiah is starting to see. I mean, this is a little bit of what we experience the problem of the Pharisees are in the New Testament. They were so concerned with their personal holiness to the neglect of caring for the people. The scripture even says that they would tithe out of their spice cabinets, right? Like, oh, let me give you 10% of my cumin, you know, like. But yet they neglected the weightier things of the law. But see, you know what I love about Isaiah? It's the humility he exhibits upon being confronted with the holiness of Yahweh. He doesn't try to explain it away. He doesn't point the finger at others saying, well, they're sin, but what about them, right? Like, like, like we see that in our public square all the time. Someone gets confronted with their wrongdoing, and they're like, yeah, but did you see X, Y, and Z? It's just deflection, right? It's like, get it off of me, right? Like, like I, I don't want to be in the spotlight too long. He accepts his lot. What's wild is he's not even begging for mercy at this point. The text says that he has seen the, the king, the Lord of hosts. You can translate that word host as armies as well, the Lord of armies. It's almost as though he's waiting to be destroyed. He's like, all right. It's like, I imagine like some of those scenes from like in the 90s, there were all these like apocalyptic movies where like floods would come in and like terrorize like an entire world or, or like whatever, right? Like, like, I don't know, like, I can't even think of the names of the movies. They were so good. Um, but it's like the, the one scene where the guy's just standing there and the, and the tsunami's just coming and he's just not even moving. He's like, all right. Right? Like, that's kind of how I picture what's going on here with Isaiah. He's like, all right, like, yeah, I guess this is it. And honestly, that's what most readers would be expecting, right? If you've only read this once and you get to verse four or whatever is verse five, you're like, oh, he's done. It's over. But then this incredible thing happens. This surprise event. Verse six, check it out. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, or look, right? Whenever you see that word behold in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, it's just, it's just the, the author saying, look, pay attention to this. This is key. This is important. Look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The burning coal glowing as it soared through the air in the hands of the seraphim toward Isaiah, was placed upon his lips. The coal was taken from the altar, the place in the temple where sacrifices for the sins of the people were performed, and the seraphim said, Behold, look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In a surprise turn of events, Isaiah is not struck down. He is not destroyed, but rather he is forgiven. He is forgiven. His guilt removed and his sin is cleansed. Pause for a minute. Let that wash over you. Because just like about five or ten minutes ago, we were sitting there staring at this holy God, seated high and lifted up, Nothing other than the tip of his robe filling the temple, right? 
trembling earth, foundations of the temple shaking, angels flying around, these heavenly beings, which, which if you read in, in Revelation, the, the heavenly beings are just a wild-looking bunch, eyes everywhere, like all sorts of crazy things, covering their eyes, covering their feet. Why are they covering their eyes? Because they too can't even look at the holiness, the splendor, and the grandeur of God. And they're not sinful. But then there's this guy who recognizes how far he is from God, and he's like, I'm done. And God doesn't do that. Like, that's the beauty of this passage. This should end in utter destruction. Just in the same way, when we read through Genesis chapter 3, the promise was if you eat or drink or if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Adam and Eve, they don't die. They don't die. We can explain that story. Well, death entered in. Yes, 100% death enters in, sure, right? But, but according to what we read in, in those first two chapters of Genesis, like they should have been like, done, bam. But no, God moves toward that brokenness, toward that sin, toward that utter, you know, one, one theologian calls it, calls it cosmic treason, and, and, and he covers them. He removes their shame. He takes care of them. Right? This is the gospel. This is what we're anticipating as we celebrate this season of Advent, that, that though we stand before a holy God, utterly deserving of his wrath, he moves towards us in grace. He moves towards us in grace. Oh, man. See, I think sometimes we can look at a passage like this and, and, and we can do this thing. And Christians have a tendency to do this thing because we're human and, and we look at the world around us and we say, oh, a holy God's going to have his way with them. Right? Or like, oh my gosh, like this, if, if, if only they knew the holiness of God, they'd understand that they're done. It's like, it's like bro, you're, you're done. <laughs> it's like we, we think it's some, I've heard some, some followers of Jesus, like they they kind of get excited about, like, the destruction of, the, of, of sinners. And it's like, whoa, like, like slow our rolls. Like, slow our rolls. We can't allow ourselves to get caught up in that. That's not the Christianity that Jesus and Paul and the rest of the apostles were putting forth. This whole, like, well, I got my salvation, so sorry, guys. Like, no. And we need to be careful that we don't slip into that. Because we're so inclined toward an us versus them reality or, or perception that we forget that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, and we can't ever get over that. We can't ever get to the point where it's like, man, I'm so glad I'm not like them. In fact, Jesus points that out when he tells this story about a Pharisee praying, and he sees this other guy praying who's kind of a mess, and, 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 and he's like, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy, right? And Jesus is like, that's not good. I know I'm butchering that paraphrase. Like, that's not even, <laughs> it's not even a good paraphrase, but, but I think you know what I'm getting at. I, I had originally intended to walk through the rest of Isaiah 6, a passage that teaches us about Isaiah's prophetic calling, 
a calling that actually results in the further hardening of the people. But honestly, I really believe it's more appropriate for us to just dig in to these first seven verses. I, I think it's that important for us to wrap our minds around the grace that Isaiah is experiencing. Right? We decided to call this Advent series Comfort, Comfort. Advent in the book of Isaiah. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the Advent season has this way of taking us on a roller coaster ride of emotions where we experience feelings of joy, anticipation, pain, sorrow, chaos, and anxiety. I also said that my hope for us during this season would be to cultivate more deeply that life with God we all long for. Isaiah was living during a time of chaos and uncertainty. Yeah, it wasn't better then. It's always been chaos and uncertainty. There is no golden age. We have to remove that from our thinking. There's no golden age. It wasn't better in the 50s. It wasn't better in the 30s. It wasn't better in the 20s. It wasn't better in the 1800s. It wasn't better, okay? We have been in the latter days for a long time, all right? There's always been evil in this world. He was also living during a time of rebellion, idolatry, and injustice. And after gazing upon and beholding the glory and holiness of God, he recognized that he too was a part of the problem. And while he deserved judgment and condemnation, that holy, glorious, earth-shaking, unapproachable, temple-filling God, he poured out that holiness in the form of a burning coal, and in a surprising stroke of grace and mercy, he removed Isaiah's guilt and atoned for his sin. In this scene, in this surprising turn of events, the seeds of what was to come were being planted. I said earlier that Advent is a season centered around the coming of God. This morning... We beheld the glory of God in full splendor, the holy, holy, holy one. We looked at that passage, right? We, we allowed ourselves, and, and I even saw some of your eyes as I was going through that text. You're just kind of like, whoa, like, that's heavy, right? Like, back to the future, that's heavy. No one? <laughs> now, those three words, holy, 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 they show up again, only this time it's in the New Testament, and it's describing Jesus seated on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip over there. I wasn't planning on reading it, but why not? It says this in, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It's toward the end of your Bibles. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like a creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They're in the throne room, the same throne room that we just read about in Isaiah. Only this time, Jesus is there. Like, it's, it's finally coming into clear view. But how did he get there? How did he get to the throne? Well, well the next chapter tells us. It literally paints it for us in chapter 5 of Revelation, verses 1 through 10, and I do have a slide for this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Like, relax, it's going to be good. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And I've read this before, and some of you might know where I'm going. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lion, before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In another surprising turn of events, the glory and holiness of God, who sounds like a lion, but when you turn your gaze upon him, it's a lamb who has been slain. And while we were yet sinners, those who us, of us who have been complicit in the evil that has ravaged this world, the lamb of God, Christ Jesus, died for us. The holiness of God, not imparted to us through a lump of burning coal, but through the sacrificial death of the God who came and dwelt among us. That is good news redeemer fellowship what i love most about this passage this isaiah passage and what i hope provides us with encouragement on this first sunday of advent is that isaiah was undone by the presence of a holy god but god was moved with compassion in the presence of a sinner
you see that reversal? Do you catch that? Isaiah was undone in the presence of a holy God, but a holy God was moved with compassion in the presence of a sinner. That is the good news of the gospel. When we behold the holiness, the glory, and the wonder of Almighty God, we should be left undone. We should be. But the surprise ending is that God in Christ through the cross and resurrection, has come into our lives by grace, through faith, forgiving us of our sins, reconciling us back to God, and he's coming again to redeem the world. And what he implores of us is to go and do likewise, is to not allow ourselves to be taken by the, 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 the spirits of this world where we pit ourselves against others and where we raise ourselves up thinking who we are in the midst of a people with unclean lips. Because we too are a people with unclean lips. Which means because we have been forgiven, because we've received grace upon grace upon grace, that, that where there's sin, grace superabounds. Like I know I've been leaning on that verse a lot lately. Where, where it's like, I, I described it um, in my class this week. I, I teach up at Ambassador. Uh, I teach Bible to middle schoolers. And I, I described it as, as like, let's pretend you have, like, you know, you're a little kid and, and you wake up in the morning before your parents wake up and you really want a glass of milk. And so you go into the refrigerator and you grab that full gallon of milk, a full gallon which is really hard for even adults to pour, right, because it always spills down the side, right, and, and you pull out this, you're like five, and you're like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to wake up mommy and daddy, I'm going to pour the milk myself, and, and you get like, like one of those like medicine cups, because little kids like little cups, and they put it down there, and, and they start pouring, and, and the milk just goes all over the counter, okay, that's the image I want in your head when you think of the super abounding grace of God being poured out upon you in the midst of your sin, okay, that it just washes over you. And that's the same grace that we are called to extend to others. That's the same grace we're called to extend to others. It's not us versus them, okay? It's not. It's not. Humanity, humanity from, from, from the dawning of creation was created for God's purposes. May it never be that we pit ourselves against one another. I'm not saying there aren't sinners in the world. I'm not saying there isn't brokenness in the world. I'm not saying we shouldn't flee from those things. But to think that we have somehow arrived and are in a better place because of anything within us, oh, that's anathema. That's, that is cursed beyond cursed. God's grace is what draws us into the kingdom of heaven. It is always grace. It is always grace. From soup to nuts, it is grace. Isaiah walked into the temple with the guilt of a nation on his shoulders, and God forgave him. Whatever it is that you are carrying into this room this morning, God gave his son Jesus, and he is offering you new life, the forgiveness of sin, and best of all, his holy presence. That's good news, Redeemer Fellowship. The coming of God. 
Father in heaven, we love you with all of our hearts. Father, I know there's brokenness in this room. I know there's pain in this room. I know there's people wrestling with sin in this room. I know there's people who feel trapped by that sin. Father, I pray this morning we would all experience even just the hem of your robe that filled the temple, Lord God. But you don't give us just the hem. You give us the entirety of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for all of us who are walking through it right now, God. Whether it's because we have been sinned against, whether it's because we are sinning, whether it's because we are wrestling and trying to fight against sin, temptation, addiction, mental and spiritual, emotional disruption, Lord God, whatever the case, Father, may today be a day where we find a little bit of respite, a little bit of peace, a little bit of your comfort, And Father, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day of salvation, Lord God. I beg that of you with all of my heart. God, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.